All right, I'd like to read scripture for you this morning. If you could turn to John 8, and it's page 522 in your Bible underneath your chair. I'll read that for us. John 8, 31 through 45. <clears throat> so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word and you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do not know, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your, what your father did. They said to him, We were not born of sexual morality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I am not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I, tell the, if, if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the word of God. The reason why you do not hear is you are not from God. This is the word of the Lord. All right, welcome to Sunday. We're going to talk about the devil today. I know you're excited about that. Everybody loves the devil in the Midwest. Um, I got so excited, the first service, we went really long, so I'll try to not do that again in this service. Uh, my name is Brandon, I serve as the lead pastor at Midtown, glad to have you with us. Uh, if you, unless you've had your head in the sand over the past couple uh, years, um, really especially since the last election cycle, there's been a lot of talk uh, culturally about what you might call the rise of this post-truth world that we live in. And so there's been new words and phrases added uh, and coined in our lexicons, kind of cultural lexicon. We, we've learned about truth decay, uh, we've heard about alternative facts, we've learned about fake news, and uh, the most recent one I heard of is deep fakes, are you familiar with deep fakes? So the Nancy Pelosi video that went viral, where she was like supposedly slurring her speech and looked drunk, uh, was actually, uh, that was an engineered uh, artificial, using artificial intelligence, so that people can take a video, this is frightening, take a video of you and make you say whatever they want essentially. And so these deep fake videos are kind of going viral. And so um, I don't know if you heard this recently, I read that Facebook removed between January and March 2.1 billion fake accounts from their system. And despite their efforts to, to root out these fake accounts, uh, the numbers, the percentage of fake accounts is the totality of Facebook's system continues to rise. It's somewhere around 5% right now and is, is ticking upwards every year. Um, 
after the 2016 election, uh, the, uh, some books that were popular a couple decades ago that you may be familiar with, Brave New World, uh, Huxley's book about kind of a dystopian future, I actually just read this for the first time uh, in the last couple of years, uh, because uh, uh, there's a pill, it's about, basically about a dystopian future where they essentially entertain everyone to death and keep them drugged using a, a, an ecstasy pill called Soma, which means body, right? So I just, I had to read that one. Uh, and then George Orwell's 1984 became uh, popular again, which is, again, about a totalitarian regime that kind of uh, engages in mind control, and you've heard these words like the thought police or newspeak or doublespeak. This all comes from 1984. And so there's a concern, right, being registered by our culture and really across the world about the kind of decline of a common set of facts that guide our reality, our shared life together, um, there's a book that was put out recently, uh, not by a conservative Christian by any means. Uh, I'll try to get this name right. The book was called The Death of Truth, and the author's name, uh, her name is Michiko Kakatani. And uh, she was the former chief critic of New York Times, uh, certainly, uh, admittedly, a, a very progressive uh, person. And, uh, and I say that because it was interesting in the book, she writes this book about her, her uh, outrage about uh, President Trump and about the alt-right, but what's interesting in this book is she has the honesty to kind of say this trend of uh, post-truth and the decay of truth, the erosion of truth, actually she traces it back, historically goes back to the 1960s with the movement of 1960s postmodernism. So after the Enlightenment, you have this reaction against modernity and you have postmodernism. It basically says that there's no one single master narrative or cultural narrative that guides the world, right? And so postmodernism, some of the famous proponents of that, Foucault, the French philosopher, uh, you had, uh, it goes all the way back to Nietzsche, Derrida, basically they, they were deconstructing reality. They were deconstructing cultural narratives, they were deconstructing religious authority, deconstructing institutions, right? It was basically just burn everything to the ground because truth resides not in any mediating uh, cultural narrative or master narrative, but truth really resides in the heart of the individual. And so every perspective is valid. Truth is all about perspective. And there was this shift in what she calls uh, from objectivity to subjectivity, right? Um, and, and thus we have kind of the blurring over the last couple decades of fact and fiction. So David Foster Wallace, who we have to quote every couple weeks, that great secular uh, prophet um, had this to say in an interview right before his death about postmodernism and its effect on us. What's been passed down from the postmodern heyday is sarcasm, cynicism, a manic ennui, which is basically an exhaustion, suspicion of all authority, suspicion of all constraints on conduct, and a terrible penchant for ironic diagnosis of unpleasantness. Now, I don't know exactly what that means, but I know it has something to do with Gen Xers because everything was ironic for us. Um, an ironic diagnosis of unpleasantness, of an ambition, not just to diagnose and ridicule, but to redeem. You've got to understand this stuff has permeated the culture. It's become our language. We're so in it, we don't even see that it's one perspective, one among many possible ways of seeing. Postmodern ironies become our environment. You could say that this has become a battleground culturally, right? When we see the polarization in politics and ideology and on university campuses and really <clears throat> even within our churches and our homes and our neighborhoods, right? 
It feels like it's an either-or proposition, and we're being pulled in two opposite and competing directions. If, if uh, love was the battlefield of a previous generation, the hippies, I guess, like our battlefield is for truth and uh, truth versus lies. The battle of good versus evil. You might even say the battle of reality versus non-reality. And what we see in the words of Jesus here is that that battle is not a modern problem. It is, in fact, an ancient blight on humanity that goes all the way back to our first parents, Jesus says, in the beginning, Adam and Eve. And this is actually one of the unifying themes of the Bible. And that's why you see everywhere, which we tend to skip over these, and we think, so, so all throughout the Bible, you'll hear warnings against false prophets, against false teachers, against false apostles, against people that masquerade uh, as purveyors of truth, but actually are deceivers. And we read those, and we maybe, this is maybe just me, because I, I, I came to Christ in a fundamentalist church, came to Jesus in a fundamentalist church, and so I tend to think, when I hear of like false teachers, like I tend to think of like the, boogie, the cultural boogeymans, you know, in the, this kind of very fundamentalist church I grew up in. So maybe you think of like the people that wave signs and are very like flamboyantly, you know, hyper-fundamentalist. But actually, this is the words of Jesus. These are the words of Jesus and the New Testament writers in warning us about the potential pitfalls of lies and deceptions and false prophets and teachers. And so we're stepping into a series for the next four weeks. We're taking a break from Exodus and we're going to be doing a series on uh, the spiritual formation practice of Scripture. And what I want to basically do with 99% of our time today is just establish, as Joel said beautifully earlier, um, I don't think we're going to be motivated to engage Scripture if we don't understand the why. Like many of us have grown up in mainline churches, Catholic churches, Protestant evangelical churches. You went to maybe like a parochial school or a Christian school or a Christian college, and scripture was just kind of something imposed on you as something you ought to do, something you should do. And uh, I think it's Brennan Manning uh, who says that we need to be careful of shooting on ourselves uh, as Christians, that we, we shouldn't live out of things, think about that for a second, we shouldn't live out of things that we ought to do or that we should do, but rather that we want to do, like our, our desires and our hearts align with a reality and it really catches fire. And that my hope today is to give us a vision for why this matters. Why should we care about Scripture? Most of us approach Scripture, it's boring, right? Like you're sitting down in the morning, you're like, all right, I know I've got to do this, and you get up early, you're tired, you're just like, okay, just read a few. Yeah, it's interesting. And like it's boring, it's confusing, it's archaic, it doesn't seem to have any relevance to your life, you don't understand the key players, you don't understand the genres, you don't understand how it's laid out. And so what I want to do is just try to cast a vision for why I think this matters, why this matters to us right here, just as it mattered to Jesus, just as it mattered to our first parents many, many millennia ago. And so uh, if you're new to SOMA, we every uh, six or eight weeks have been stopping uh, our normal rhythms of teaching and engaging in teaching around a spiritual formation practice, right? We have 11 core practices. We have a website set up for this. We'll talk more about that later Spiritual formation is essentially discipleship or what people have called apprenticeship to Jesus. And so we, we use this language, practicing the way of Jesus together for the life of the world. We're learning as disciples what it means to learn to be with Jesus. Practicing the way of Jesus means to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, 
and to do what Jesus did. That's, that's what it means to be a disciple, not just to believe certain doctrine, not to have certain facts in order, not like I grew up in the church, but what does it really look like to be with Jesus so that we can become like Jesus and then ultimately do what Jesus did? That's what we're after here as a church, not just showing up to a religious service, but helping each other along in the journey of spiritual formation. Now, when it comes to uh, renewing our minds, which is what we're going to talk about today, the battle for truth and lies, I want to throw up a couple resources because I want you to engage in this. If you're interested in the subject, I want you to engage in this outside of Sunday. So some books that have been helpful to me and to our staff and our pastors as we've been working through this, The Truth About Lies by David Tackle, a work, a work that you've probably never heard of, but David Tackle was mentored by uh, Dallas Willard, who many of you know. Um, it's a great, fantastic book. Matter of fact, a lot of the content today comes from some of his uh, major framework. Uh, Renovation of the Heart by Dallas Willard, chapter 7, and specifically on the renewal of the mind in chapter 8. And then this great book just came out, Alan Jacobs, who's a professor, I believe, of literature or English uh, at Baylor. Uh, he's a, a follower of Jesus, and he writes a book on how to think. And he says it's amazing how many of us don't understand how to think well. And so this book's on learning to recognize bias uh, in the ways that we think and understand how uh, how we're wired to think in ways that are wiser and more courageous. And so let me just lay this out as kind of like our big theme or proposition for the rest of our time together. Why does Scripture matter? Why should you care? Here's, here's what I think. Here's what's been helpful for me. Truth is absolutely essential to flourishing. That's why you should care. Truth is absolutely essential to flourishing in your relationship with God, in your relationship with others, and even for your own soul. You cannot be whole without truth, right? Truth, defined biblically, is essentially reality. It's ultimate reality. It's God's reality. That's why truth matters. And so we're going to be talking about this week and next week uh, scripture as the true story of the world. So I'm going to take this week and talk about the truthfulness of it. What does it mean for scripture to be engaging truth that corresponds to reality? And then Pastor Josh is going to come next week and talk about what is the actual story of scripture, because many of us don't understand. We've come at it from different, you know, books or angles or passages, but we don't know the story of scripture, and we don't understand the competing narratives that frame up how we live as human beings in this cultural moment. So Pastor Josh is going to do that next week. But here's what, here's what I want to say. One of the primary ways that we come to internalize and to be transformed, because that's what we're after with, with spiritual formation. We want transformation, not behavior modification. We want transformation, not information. There's a big difference. One of the ways we come to internalize and be transformed by God's truth is by learning to delight in, meditate on, and trust scripture. I mean, at the end of the day, I think so much of engaging God is about trust. We don't come to the scriptures because we don't trust that he has our best interests in mind. We don't trust that he's a good father whose ways and thoughts are higher than our ways and ultimately lead to wholeness, righteousness, justice, peace, love, kindness. We don't believe it. Mostly we trust ourselves. And what the scriptures call us to is to disobey ourselves and to trust God. So what does it look like for us to cultivate a desire fueled by the grace of the Holy Spirit to trust God's word? 
to delight in them, to immerse ourselves with them, that they would so saturate our imagination that we would develop these Christ-like instincts so that as we approach coworkers who are hostile to us, so as we engage in conflict in our marriages, so as we try to figure out how to disciple our kids in the midst of being angry at them, as we try to figure out how to love our neighbors as ourselves, we, we figure out how to engage in Twitter in a way that's not fueled by hatred and contempt, that we would have the kind of minds that have been renewed so we do that in a way that's Christ-like as opposed to um, worldly in the true sense of the, the, the Bible's way of defining the world, systems that are opposed to the Father's good design. So that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about truth and lies as we set up our time. So first, let's start off with the tr- what, is, what is true about lies? What do we see Jesus um, establishing when it comes to lies? I want to talk about the truth about lies and then how we're set free by truth. That's kind of our two, those are our two big ideas today. So first, the truth about lies. The first thing that we see Jesus saying here, so Jesus is in the temple and he's teaching uh, this crowd. So in the book of John, whenever you see believers, don't think uh, believers, first of all, uh, don't think uh, believers in the sense of like these are all disciples. Believers are crowds of people who kind of follow Jesus. They flock Jesus because they're curious, but their, their faith is very fickle, right? So that's kind of who Jesus is talking about. If, you ever, if you're a person that struggles with fickleness, you'll find very much comfort in the book of John, right? Because you have people struggling to figure out what does it really mean to be a disciple of Jesus. So Jesus is preaching during the Feast of the Tabernacles at the end of the harvest crowd of people gathered around him, and he's talking to them about freedom. So notice the frame of reference here. Jesus says, this is what I've come to do. Jesus said to these Jews who had believed him, trusted in him, if you abide in my word, make your home in my word, you truly are my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. I love what Flannery O'Connor, the Southern novelist, Catholic novelist, says. She says, you will know the truth and it will make you weird, right? Like, and there is a sense in which that's what Jesus is saying. To be free is a different kind of freedom. And he goes on to engage them in a conversation because then they say, well, we're not slaves to anyone. We've never been slaves. What do you mean we're not free? And so it, he engages them in this conversation around uh, what it means to truly be free on the inside. The Jews certainly had been in slavery in Egypt and in Babylon, but they were saying, we've never been internally slaves. We're children of Abraham. We're children of the promise. We're children of, of the covenant of Abraham. And Jesus says, well, you may be children of Abraham biologically, genetically, but you're not spiritually. So he's kind of conducting a paternity test here, essentially, for lack of a better word, and he's saying, spiritually speaking, your father is the devil. Wow, go Jesus, right? Like total punk rock Jesus here, like throwing down hard truth on the Jews, on his people. And really, I want you to think here of the Jews as representative of you. This is not Jesus who was himself a Jew being anti-Semitic, okay? This is not a statement about their ethnicity. This is a statement about their hearts. That's true of all of us. So go on down then to verse 43. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. Literally, he speaks his native 
language or tongue, for he is a liar and the father of lies. What do we learn about lies, about unreality from the lips of Jesus here, from the teaching of Jesus? The first thing we see is that the real enemy of truth is the devil. The real enemy of truth is not Donald Trump or MSNBC. The real enemy of truth is the evil one. Jesus says there is a devil. He is real. This word devil here is the word diabolos, from which we get diabolical. The root means to accuse, to slander. And so he's saying there is one whose mission in life is to oppose the work of God, and he is a real, personal being. That's hard for you to grab onto Like, you're just like, man, I'm a modern person. I don't believe in the devil. This is all just kind of like superstition and leftover from the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages. Like, I'm not really a devil person. Just think about this. If you believe in God, which 90% of Americans, 90 plus percent of Americans believe in some sort of supernatural, all-powerful being, then how hard is it for you to open up a category in your mind mind for an anti-God? Like, if there's a God, then there can be an anti-God. And Jesus says there actually is. And I would ask you to consider how else do you explain the existence of evil in the world? Like, how do you you explain the rise of fascism in the 20th century? How do you explain Germany, which at the time, at the turn of the 20th century, was what we would say was an advanced civilization from all measures? When you look at philosophy, when you look at the arts, when you look at what they were doing in every sector of society, they were advanced, and yet... We have the Holocaust. How do you explain that? How do you explain otherwise educated, intelligent people doing really evil things? How do you explain the evil in your own heart? Right? Like you have desires to do this thing, but then you have these urges to do this thing. Like where does that come from? Jesus says it comes from the evil one. There is a devil. He is real. Jesus calls him the prince of the power of of the air. He calls him the ruler of this world, ruler being the highest ranking military official. Uh, John will go on to say, one of Jesus' disciples later, that the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. We live in a world imbued with the presence of God, but also of the evil one. Paul says, this is the real battle that we're facing. It's not political. It's not educational. It's not economic, primarily. The essence of the battle, Paul says, that we face when it comes to truth and lies is spiritual. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, Paul says this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. And Paul had certainly done some wrestling with flesh and blood, right? With, with the powers that be in his day. But our primary battle, he says, is against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And don't miss this. That is not just out there in the big, bad, secular world, if there is such a thing. Notice the presence of Satan, the presence of the evil one, the devil, in the book of John is inside of the religious community, not outside. Inside the religious community, not outside. Jesus is saying, we have to deal with the reality of the evil one as well. Don't be naive. So the real enemy of truth is the devil. The devil's core strategy, Jesus says, is deception. That's what he does. He traffics in deception. 
And this is important for us to know because when we tend to think of the devil, we tend to have our mind and our imagination shaped by like literature from the past couple of centuries. And so it's like Dante's Inferno, it's Pitchforks, it's Saturday Night Live, Will Ferrell. I mean, we have all kinds of weird thoughts about the devil, right? But what we see here um, is that the devil, Jesus says, doesn't come with pitchforks, but with dangerous ideas, which I would argue is much more subtle and much more potentially lethal. He comes with deceptive ideas. Think more Inception. Have you ever seen the movie Inception? Plant an idea in the core of your being. That's the most dangerous thing that you can do to somebody. Not Dante's Inferno. And that's really what the whole book of of John is about. It's about the struggle between light and darkness. The enemy represents darkness. And darkness is basically this disposition towards ignorance, this disposition that we have a lostness that leads to sin and evil. So we tend to get focused in like spiritual warfare conversations on sin and evil. But what we ought to be thinking about, he says, is actually to back up a step and say what really is the kicker is the deception that leads to the sin and evil. That's actually the point of attack for Jesus is just understand that it's not about, if you're only going after the sin, it's like mowing the weeds, right? You continue to mow the weeds and you continue to see them come back up. To get to the root, you have to deal with deception. You have to deal with the fact that there is, there is an enemy who is blinding you to truth and it is that deception that leads us to sin, that leads us to evil, that tempts us to oppose God and his purposes in the world. Now, what do we mean by deception? When you think of deception, you tend to think of getting tricked. But deception in the Bible is a much broader word. David Tackle in his book says this, deception includes all of our perceptions or interpretations of reality that are incomplete or distorted in some way. This goes far beyond the basic notion of being tricked or being tempted to sin. It includes nearly everything we think or believe that is in any way flawed. Any misplaced emphasis on life issues or the various aspects of relationships, any foundational matter about which we are uncertain or confused, and even things that we simply do not know, that we ought to know for the sake of a life well lived. There's a lot of things that we know as 21st century Americans. Many of them do not pertain to a life well lived. We know a lot about technology. We know a lot about science. We know a lot about a lot of things. We don't know a lot about the soul. We don't know a lot about the heart. We don't know a lot about relationships. That's deception. That's Satan's space. He gets in and takes incomplete information, incomplete ideas, and twists them. He's the father of lies, Jesus says. He's the origin point for unreality, for lies. And he says this goes all the way back to the beginning, to kind of the murder or the attempted murder of the image of God in our first parents. This is, this is a, an analogy, a reference back to Genesis chapter 3. Remember Genesis chapter 3, Satan comes to Eve and he tempts her with a deception. This is the first deception we see in the Bible. And what does the devil do? He distorts reality. He brings some truth, but then puts a little twist on it. That's what the devil does. That's deception. 99% truth, 1% lie, but it's the 1% that kills you. What, what was he distorting? Like there's a pattern to how Satan works, and it's unique in, 
and individualized, but it's also universal. He, he's distorting three primary things when he comes and he tempts and he deceives. The first thing is he distorts our theology. Who is God? Right? The very first question he asks Eve, did God really say? Is God really a good father? Or is he the kind of father that withholds? There's this one tree over here, all these trees that you can eat from that are blessed by God. But there's this one tree. What's God up to with this one tree? What's this knowledge he's trying to keep from you? What's this good life that he's trying to cut you off from? That's what he does. He questions the nature and the character of God. He drives a wedge in our trust of God. Second thing is anthropology. He twists and distorts our understanding of ourselves, who we are, anthropology or psychology or sociology, who I am, who we are as human beings. What does it mean to be human? He says, you can be like God. You can transcend your mortal limitations. You can transcend and you can become like God. You can think like God. You can feel like God. You can act like God. You can have the power of God. You don't need these human limitations over here. He tempts us to move out of our kind of pecking order, so to speak, as creatures and to try to become creators. He distorts our image of ourself. And then finally, he distorts our morality. Our morality, how life works. What is the good life? What does it look like to be fully human? What's wholeness all about? What's righteousness about? It's, it's found, he says, in disobeying God. Take the tree which looks good and you do you, Eve. That's the good life, right? Individualism, autonomy. You don't need God to be happy. You do you. You do not need God to sustain joy and happiness in life. He's messing with what we might call um, the mental maps of human beings. Distortion plays on this field of mental maps. So how, does, how do lies work? How do lies get down and embedded into our bodies? How do they move from ideas to getting embedded in our way of being in the world, right? Because that's, that's really what a lie is. It's, a, it's an unreality that's become a reality. That's the heart of a lie. We as human beings have the potential to imagine what's not true yet or what's not real yet and to bring that possibility into reality, okay? This is getting like a little philosophical, but you, you get my point. And so what, what a mental map is, is essentially a collection of ideas by which you navigate life. Mostly unconscious, mostly hidden, mostly implicit. Like you don't have to think about them. They're automatic ways that you are. It's your givens or your normals. Like this is just the way you do X. Think about your hometown where you grew up. I grew up on the south end of Louisville, Kentucky. Um, I could navigate the creeks in my neighborhood. I grew up in this neighborhood on the south side, a couple different neighborhoods, and I knew where to go. I didn't need street names. I could tell you kind of like 10 paces here, then take a right and turn around the sewage plant, and you'll get to the back of St. Bernard's where all the kids smoke. You know, like that's kind of, that, that's a mental map. You don't have to think about it. You've learned to navigate the terrain based on your experiences. So how mental maps form quickly is that we have events and relationships, that we encounter as, as kids, right? From the earliest days, we're always encountering other people or we have events that happen to us or events that we engage in. And then we have perceptions about the world that arise from our interaction with those people and those events. We perceive this to be dangerous. We perceive this to be safe. We perceive this to be right. We perceive this to be wrong. We perceive this to be blue. We perceive this to be green. And then out of those perceptions flow interpretations about the nature of God about the nature of who we are 
and about what it means to live a good life. And all this is happening without us thinking about it. Okay, like this is right, this is, it's just, it's happening to us. And then out of those interpretations, we respond and we live our lives. And so we enter back into the cycle and we have new perceptions. We have new relationships that form new perceptions and new interpretations. And so our minds and our bodies are always gathering information from our environment that, that forms our mental maps for how we navigate life in a broken world. Now, here's the thing. Because we live in a fallen world, our mental maps are largely... So I discovered mental maps uh, when I first got married. And uh, the very first Christmas that Emily and I had, we shared together. Um, she grew up in a Catholic family, big family, like a million people in Louisville, and they do everything together. I grew up in a family of four, uh, and, and uh, we didn't really have like a lot of traditions. And so um, when it came down to Christmas, Emily's like, hey, we're going to do Christmas my family, which I just thought, okay, we're going to go over and eat a meal and just watch TV. That's what my family does. She's like, no, actually, there's like uh, 18 different events from Christmas Eve all the way through Christmas weekend. This is more of like a way of life than it is like an event. And I was like, nope, I'm not going to do it. And she's like, what do you mean you're not going to do it? This is the way you do Christmas. I'm like, no, the way you do Christmas is low key. And like, her dad's calling us, like, when are you guys coming over? And I'm like, we're not going to Bob Evans and then to the movie and then getting into our jammies and eating this special spaghetti meal and all, you know, laying under the tree and listening to chestnuts roasting over an open, not going to do it? And she's like, well, that's weird. And I'm like, well, you're weird. Mental maps, that's her given. My given is this. We all have these mental maps. And, and again, the problem is that until we see them, we can't deal with them because they're largely unconscious. But what we find as we get older is that our mental maps are wrong. Like, have you ever had a moment where you thought something was so true only to get older and discover that it actually wasn't true or it just wasn't the only way to do it? And there's like this massive aha moment. Like, I remember the first time that I found out that not everyone ate ketchup and bologna sandwiches every day for lunch. I just assume that's like what you do. And lots of people pointed out, hey, this is kind of weird. You know, like I, I have a mental map that this is a good, healthy, nutritious meal. And we do that. That's what happens to all of us. We have these mental maps and the enemy enters in and he distorts our reality. He deceives us. He influences our perceptions. He influences our interpretations. Right? Like if you're a victim of trauma, there's the initial pain of trauma. If you've been abused, there's the very real pain of abuse. But then the pain that continues on beyond that lives on in your memories. It lives on in your interpretations of what that means about who God is and about who you are and about how you live life in a post-traumatic world. We, we, we have mental maps that tell us that we're unlovable. Right, because of the ways that our families raised us. You're not worthy. You're nothing. You're a nobody. Nobody cares about you. Nobody loves you. And then what happens? We grow up with these mental models, and we have a hard time trusting. And we don't trust people. And then when people let us down, we're like, see, aha, I told you, you can't trust anybody. 
And we have these recycled recycle kind of narratives and implicit beliefs that play and interpretations of those realities that impact our ability to live in healthy relationship with other people and healthy relationship with God and a healthy sense of who we are in our own souls. And that's what deception does. Deception, Jesus says, leads to death. It leads to death. Deception murders. The devil is a murderer. He wants to kill, steal, and destroy. And he does a really good job of it. Deception poisons the soul. Poisons the body. It poisons our whole person. And it leads to death. It kills our relationships. It kills our ability to feel properly especially hard emotions. It distorts our ability to think wisely. It kills. And the great danger of the enemy's deception is that the hardest deceptions are the ones that we're blind to. The hardest ones are the ones that are just the air that we breathe. Because we're conditioned to think that we're not deceived. Otherwise, if we thought we were deceived, we'd do something different. We're conditioned to think that we're on the right side of history, that our idea system, as Dallas Willard says, our lifescape is the right one. And so we don't see the ways that we are being deceived. We don't see how toxic our family systems can be at times. Because we weren't slapped around physically, we think, well, this is just the way that it's supposed to work. Um, we don't see uh, the ones in our culture we don't see Western values as merely ideas. We see them as the way to do life. So we don't see democracy as an idea. It's a reality. We don't see capitalism as an idea. It's a reality. We don't see the American dream as an idea, but as a reality. And we fail to recognize the rest of the world looks at us and they're like, hey, that's weird. Hey, there's some things that are unhealthy about that way of life. And there are pieces of that that are absolutely incompatible with the kingdom of God. We don't even see it. The worst is we don't see it in Christian institutions. How about in our Christian schools? How about in our churches? How about in our Christian colleges? We assume all of the evil is out there. But again, the devil is in the religious community as well. So we don't see things like legalism, behavior modification, try harder. Just read your Bible and pray. Take two of these and call me in the morning. We don't see triumphalism, this false sense of victory that leads to massive disenchantment and disillusion when we get into our 40s and 50s. We don't see the syncretism and how we buy into cultural narratives in the world and we baptize them and we just call them Christian. We don't see fundamentalism. Like, we can't see these things. And so we've got to be so aware. And that's why Jesus came. He came as not only a savior, but as a teacher, a rabbi to teach us a new way of being in the world, to free us from the bondage of deception. And that's where we'll close here. You have been set free if you abide in my word, Jesus says. You are my disciples. You will know the truth. And again, that word know is not intellectual. It is experiential. You will know. You will encounter. You will experience the truth. And when you experience truth, then you'll be set free. Then you'll be liberated. Your whole person will be set free from the bondage of deception. 
transformed, as Paul says, from one degree of glory to the next. It doesn't happen overnight. It ha- it's, there's a starting point. There's a decision point, And it incrementally happens as we're being transformed by truth from one degree to the next. So what does that mean to be set free from the truth? A couple of things. One, it means that Jesus is the truth. Truth is a person. It's not abstract. It's not academic. It's not a philosophy, right? Ideas don't change you. They don't make you holy. A person makes you holy. Jesus presents himself throughout the book of John as truth. Truth has become human. Truth has drawn near. John says in chapter 1, truth took on flesh and moved into the neighborhood, one uh, scholar puts it. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is saying, I am reality in the flesh. If you want to know what it looks like to be whole, to experience healing, look to me, believe in me, trust in me. Jesus says in John 18, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. 1 John 3, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. To destroy strongholds, idea systems, implicit beliefs that bind us and keep us from being free people. We think we're free, we're not. And the most dangerous place to be is to be a person who thinks you are. To be a pastor who thinks he is. Truth is a person. Jesus is the embodiment of truth. His life, his death, his resurrection was all about showing us true reality. As opposed to the false reality, the unreality of Satan. Second, then that leads to truth is an invitation to reality. It's an invitation for a new mental map for ultimate reality, for that, that mental map, which is according to God's design for navigating life in his world. As we come to believe truth, we show up to reality better. We show up to reality well when we believe truth. Truth has no power unless it's believed and internalized. And, and when it's internalized, it's released. When we believe the truth about our bodies, we show up well in our gender. We show up well in our sexuality. We show up well with our finances. We show up well in our marriage. We show up well in our relationships. We show up well as parents. When we believe truth, we show up to reality. When we don't believe truth, we show up poorly to reality, even if we're successful and have lots of money, and otherwise people are telling us how awesome we are. When it comes to the things that matter the most to the heart of God, we don't show up well. M. Scott Peck, the great psychiatrist who became a follower of Jesus later in life, wrote a book called The Road Less Traveled, and he says this. He says, mental health, like physiologically this is even true, mental health is an ongoing process of dedication to reality at all costs. Pathology is the inability to accept reality. The most extreme form of this you see is in schizophrenia. When you're so in the grip of unreality, you literally lose your mind. Dementia is so in the grip of unreality, you literally start to fall apart. That's what it's like to live under the sway of the evil one. You literally fall apart spiritually, emotionally, relationally. Truth 
is an imitation of reality. Truth leads to life, right? The truth will set you free. Truth is about life. It's not about oppression. It's not about repression. The truth of God is not about putting his thumb on you. It is about releasing you to live in fullness of life. It's about wholeness. It's about healing. It's about true humility, about true resurrection. We are dead under the power of the enemy, but under Jesus we are transferred into the kingdom of light and life and wholeness and vitality and, and peace and love and joy. That's what it means to live in truth. Now, that happens for us, we'll close here, that happens for us in three ways three things that are important for us because it's not about again just having your doctrine right a lot of people think of truth and it's like bible study and have all the data points right and the facts like you can be a jerk and be really conversant in the bible and we know a lot of them three things we need the holy spirit and we'll talk more about this in the coming weeks the holy spirit the presence of god the heat of God, the very presence of God, God's empowering presence living in us. That's why Jesus gave us the Holy Spirit, to be present in us, to inhabit our bodies, to teach us. John 16, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you, he'll preach to you, literally, the things that are to come. He will glorify me, Jesus says, for he will take what is mine and share it. The Holy Spirit's job is to bring to our awareness our false interpretations of life, our false narratives, our false responses, and replace them with the truth of God's perceptions and God's interpretations. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He disrupts that distortion field, and he invites us to experience reality. And he'll use all kinds of teachable moments to get us there. You know what a teachable moment is? It's that moment when you realize, I've been operating this way, and I thought that I was this kind of person, but I'm actually this kind of person. The dissonance between what you say and then what actually happens when somebody cuts you off in traffic. Like that distance between what you say you believe and what actually happens when um, you get cancer and you get sick. That distance between what you say you believe and what happens when you're still single at 35 and you thought you'd be married. How do you then respond to life? That, that thing that happens, the dissonance between what you say you believe and when your marriage falls apart, when your child goes crazy. Like that gap, those are the teachable moments where the Holy Spirit is revealing what you really believe, not what you say you believe. And that's the very point where, where Jesus and the Holy Spirit enters in to heal false perceptions and help us believe truth and live truth. We need the Spirit. God's presence. We need scripture. This is where scripture comes in finally for like 30 seconds, a cameo. Scripture is God's reality, right? And in scripture, we encounter God. We don't read information. We encounter the living God speaking his reality to our hearts. That's why when you see Jesus interacting with scripture in Luke chapter 4, when he resists the devil, he speaks scripture because it was so internalized. It was so part of his inner terrain that he lived from the words of his father. He knew that he didn't have to listen to the lies of the enemy because he was God's beloved son with whom he was well pleased. We need scripture. We need truth. And then we need relationships. We need God's people. We need the context of relationships because we can't know ourselves by ourselves. We must do this in community with 
other people. And as other people share life with us, as they listen to us, as they encourage us, as they expose those false perceptions and interpretations, we all of a sudden get to see, oh, wow, I'm not as loving as I thought I was. I thought I was a forgiving person, but this person right here, I don't think I could forgive him. We begin to go, well, what would it look like for you to forgive them as Jesus has forgiven you? What are you believing that keeps you from forgiving them? What operating system are you living in that, that makes you act this way? So let me just go to communion here with these thoughts. You're always being formed by reality or unreality. Every day, you're being formed. You're being shaped into either the image of God or the image of the evil one, Satan, the devil. I want you to think about this week how much time you spend on social media. The average person picks up their phone 80 times a day and is on social media for two hours and watches about five hours of TV. I want you to think about your reading habits. I want you to think about the talk radio and podcasts that you imbibe. I want you to think about the casual conversations that you have around your office. Are those conversations leading you to be formed into the image of truth or into the image of lies? Are you opening your body, your soul, your mind to ideas and images that are congruent with God's reality, with what's good, true, and beautiful, or the devil's unreality? And let's just pretend for a moment that you could actually be deceived. If you were being deceived right now, this week, and you didn't know it, like you couldn't see it, you're blind, what would be some of the likely sources of your deception? Could it be your family of origin, the way that you were raised? Could it be uh, this you know, particular person that you follow, that you read, that you watch, a Twitter influencer, an Instagram influencer? Like, Could it be these things that we just take for granted that are our givens, are the very ways that Satan enters in to deceive us and trick us and to keep us in bondage? That's why we've curated for you a bunch of resources that we hope that you'll engage with. With scripture, we've got a practice guide. We've got some other things. We want to help you with scripture meditation. We want to help you with study. We want to help you with memorization. We want to help you with listening. We've got all these resources online intended to help you engage with scripture. And we hope this week that you will. But I just want you to maybe stop and begin with awareness and prayer and discernment. Asking God, God, would you open up my eyes? Would you use others around me to help open up my eyes to ways that I might be being formed into the image of the evil one rather than the image of God and his truth and his reality. Let me pray over us, and then we'll take communion and send you out. Father, we thank you that your word is truth, that you sanctify us in truth, that you've called us to be a people of truth, a counterculture of truth in a world of fake news and alternative facts and lies. You have called your children to believe things that are true and that correspond to your reality, your design for human flourishing in the world. And so God, help us by faith by grace, this is not something we can manufacture through cold logic and rational study, but God, only by your spirit among us, your scriptures, and your people can we truly encounter your reality. And so, God, would you awaken us to the deception and the, the lies of the enemy that many of us have walked in for decades. God, may you be gracious to show us some of those patterns of interpreting the world that are wrong. And God, through your truth, would you liberate us, set us free, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.
As we come to communion, I want you to think of this as an opportunity to experience liberation. 